everyone. Sorry to interrupt your conversations. It's always great to see everyone talking, getting to know one another, and discussing this really important theme, which will be what we're investigating in today's sermon. Um, before I get into uh, our message today, just to let you know that next week we'll be, we'll be having a guest speaker coming in. His name is Gabriel Tan, uh, or Tan, if I pronounce it in the correct Singaporean way. He's a Singaporean. Uh, he's studying at Queensland Theological College, and we'll be heading back to the Crossing Church in Singapore as part of the pastoral team. So I'm really looking forward to having him with us next week as he brings us a word from 3 John, a letter that we don't really look at very much. And I'm really looking forward to having him here because it will help us to expand our gospel partnership, to actually think about, uh, we'll hear about also the work of the gospel in Singapore. We'll be able to pray for that a little bit. Uh, widen our perspective on how God's working in this world. So that's a great thing about having guests come to speak to us as we think about God's work, not just here, but all around Australia and all around the world. Now, friends, in, um, if you're an NBA fan, a basketball fan, you'll know about a certain debate going on, but even if you're not, you'll understand what this debate is. It's, uh, it's a debate called, who is the goat? Who is the goat? I'm not talking about small, woolly mammals. I'm talking about who is the greatest of all time. And recently this debate has been raging. It's been raging for decades. Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? But it's narrowed down somewhat to these two players, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Even if you're not a basketball fan, I'm sure you would have heard these names before. Who is the GOAT? Who's the greatest of all time? And this debate is really, uh, it's been raging. It's all over the internet. And people, but the question is, what's the criteria? How do we decide who's the greatest of all time? Is it how many games that they've actually won? Uh, is it um, their, uh, how many championships they've got under their belt? That's a big one. Uh, is it their average scoring percentage? What is it, actually, that makes someone the greatest player of all time? And when we think about this criteria, when we think about how we rate who's the greatest, it's not just for basketball players, is it? The criteria that we use, it's all about success. It's all about achievements. It's all about skill. That's how we see people in this world as great. Think about the great CEOs of the world and how we view them, the Steve Jobs of the world. Their success, their achievements. These people are great. All the athletes we admire, these people are great because of what they can do on the field, what they can do on the court, whatever. Their skills, their achievements, that's what makes them great. Think about even the, our peers. Think about our family. Who are the people that you respect, that you admire, that you think are really great? The people that have achieved much. The people that are successful. The people that excel at their jobs. The people that uh, have their lives all together, that are, have fantastic families. These are the people that we think are great. That's how we view greatness, isn't it? But in today's passage, we'll see that Jesus has a completely different view of greatness. It's completely countercultural to everything that we think, everything that the world feeds into us about greatness. Jesus' view of greatness is completely different. And here's the thing. He doesn't have anything against greatness. He thinks greatness is a good thing, but it needs to be on his terms, Jesus' terms. As we think about where we left off last week, we saw that Jesus uh, brought a shocking prediction to the disciples about his impending death. 
Peter had actually recognised who Jesus Christ was uh, last week. He said, you are the Messiah, you are the King, you are the Anointed One. He recognises that, but then Jesus brings a really shocking word. I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And for the disciples, this was completely shocking. This is not what the king is supposed to do. And they can't get over this fact that their king is going to die. But amidst this prediction, they actually miss something really important. So Mark 8, 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Rise again. Jesus will come back from the dead. The disciples missed this part when they were uh, debating with him, rebuking him for predicting that he will die. He will rise again from the dead. And this little bit of his prediction actually forms the framework of what's to come in today's passage, of what's actually to come. Because right after this, Jesus ends his prediction with the first verse of chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. What's Jesus talking about here? Some of these disciples with Jesus are going to see the kingdom of God coming in power before they die. What, what's going to happen? Isn't the kingdom of God a future reality of God's power and reign and rule? How will they see this? Well, let's go on. They're going to actually see a glimpse of greatness. And we're at our first point, a glimpse of greatness what happens next is Jesus takes Peter, James and John up with him to a high mountain and Jesus is transfigured before them. He's transformed before them. Um, what happens is Jesus' clothes actually become intensely bright like nothing else on earth and they see the radiance of his glory come out. They see a glimpse of Jesus' glory. He's transformed from his human form into the heavenly glory that he possesses the transfiguration. And along with them comes Elijah and Moses. They appear by Jesus' side, two great prophets, the great prophets of Israel's history. And understandably, uh, the disciples are in fear. Peter, James and John, they're terrified. They don't know what to say. Peter says to, all Peter can figure out is, do you guys want some tents? I'll build you guys some tents. But before he can get on with that task, a cloud covers them. A great cloud, and they hear a voice, the voice of God. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And they're here, and they're seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. They're seeing the great prophets of the past with Christ. They hear the voice of God reminding them who Jesus is. This is my beloved son. And that he's, we're reminded about how to respond to Jesus. Listen to him. He has authority from the Father. This is the commissioning of Jesus again. Listen to Jesus Christ. And the disciples are terrified. And then all of a sudden, it is quiet again. And it's just Jesus. As they make their way down from the mountain, Jesus says this to his disciples in Mark 9, verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. What just happened? What just happened? Well, friends, we've just seen a glimpse of greatness, a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ, His heavenly glory. 
Jesus promised some of his disciples that they want to die before they saw the kingdom of God coming in power. Well, here is a glimpse of that power of the kingdom. Here is a glimpse of the king and his glory and his might and his power. Jesus gave just a little sneak peek of the kingdom, a tiny preview of the real thing. The book of Revelation gives us a picture of that final day where the kingdom will be consummated in his reality. And have a look at this little verse from Revelation 21, verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. Have a think about that verse. In the future reality, when the kingdom of God is established, who is at the center of the kingdom? It is the king. And it is his radiant glory that fills all of reality. There's no need for the sun. There's no need for the moon because you know where the light will come from? From Christ, the king. His radiance, his glory, his greatness will fill every square inch of the future kingdom of God. This is the reality that's waiting. The glorious king. And here the disciples get just a tiny, tiny glimpse of that reality, that a glimpse of greatness. And did you realize when you think about the context, what's happened? What's Jesus talking about just before this transfiguration event? He's talking about his resurrection. And what does he talk about immediately after this transfiguration event? He's talking about his resurrection. Don't tell anyone that this will happen, that what you've seen until I've risen from the dead. And he says this because the resurrection is a key event that establishes Jesus' greatness. The resurrection is where Jesus is declared to be the victorious king who overcomes death, who defeats death itself. The resurrection is where Jesus ascends to heaven to take his place on the throne. The resurrection is the event which shows that Jesus is the great, glorious king over all creation that defeats death itself, the greatest enemy. The resurrection is central to the greatness of Jesus Christ. And here Jesus gives a little glimpse of that greatness. As Jesus journeys on, uh, he encounters um, a demon-possessed boy. Uh, we don't have time to go into detail in this passage, unfortunately, but he casts out the demon from that boy, showing his greatness once again. And everyone thinks that this boy is dead after Jesus casts out the demon. But Jesus takes his hand and raises him. Another resurrection picture of Jesus overcoming death. That's part of who he is as the great king. But we'll pick up the narrative as Jesus passes through his home region of Galilee. He's coming back home and he gives his disciples a second prediction about his death. And we're at our second point, counter-cultural greatness. Mark 9.31, have a look at this verse with me. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. Jesus keeps talking about his ultimate goal here. He's given one prediction about his death. Here's his second one. His goal is the cross. He needs to go there. The Son of Man, that's himself, is going to be killed. That is the goal that he's here for. Now, from a human's perspective, you think about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's a complete and utter failure, isn't it? Jesus is defeated. His enemies take him. They nail him to the cross and he dies. They stop all possibility of some sort of human reign here on this earth, of some kingship here. 
It's an utter and complete failure if you look at it in human terms. But we need to note something about this verse. Have a look at this verse. There's a key word here. Did you notice it in verse 31? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Who is in control here? Who's in control? It's God. God is in control. Mere men can do nothing to God's Son without the divine permission of God. God is the one that delivers His Son into the hands of men to be killed. Men can do nothing on their own. This is God's plan. This is no accident. This is part of God's plan. Now, why on earth would the Father have as part of His plan His own Son being killed? What sort of father is that? Well, friends, it's part of his plan because he loves us and it is the only way. If there was any other way, God the Father would not have done this, but this is the only way. The only way that his people can have forgiveness. The only way that sinners can be forgiven. The only way that his people can be redeemed. The only way that his people can have salvation. This is the only way. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay for our sins, to forgive our sins, something that we could never do without him. This is the only way. The only way. And God does it because he loves us. This is part of his plan. This is no accident. It needs to happen. It needs to happen, friends. And this it's the love of God. This is the love of God. How did the disciples respond to this news? Well, the disciples hear Jesus' Jesus's prediction for a second time and they don't understand it. Uh, they, don't, they don't say anything. They're pretty scared to say anything. Probably after what happened to Peter, he got called Satan. So they're probably not willing to put up their hand anymore. Um, and as Jesus is walking down with them to Capernaum, uh, they, they go to a, a house and they enter this house. And Jesus says, what were you guys talking about on the way? What were you arguing about? I heard you arguing. And they're completely silent. Because you know what they were talking about. Right after Jesus has said he's going to die in suffering and pain on the cross, you know what they're talking about? Who is the greatest? Hey guys, who's the greatest disciple? Hey, how many demons did you cast out last week? Hey, Jesus loves me better. I get to sit next to him at the table. This is the sort of conversation they're having after Jesus has just told them that he's going to die. No wonder they're silent. They, can, they would be completely ashamed of themselves at this point, wouldn't they? Who is the greatest? That's what they're talking about. Who is the greatest? But of course, Jesus knows this. And he sits down, which means he's about to teach. That's how... Uh, Jewish teachers taught back then. And here comes another lesson on discipleship. Mark 9.35. Have a look at this verse with me. Oh, Sorry, it's not on the screen. But if you've got your Bibles, have a look at with me. Verse 35. <clears throat> Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Let me read that again. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. 
Jesus is saying to them, you want to know about greatness? Okay, you're talking about greatness. Well, let me teach you about greatness. If you want to be the first, you need to be the last. If you want to be a winner, you need to be a loser. If you want to be the greatest, you need to be at the very bottom. You need to be a servant to everyone and anyone. This is greatness. And this is completely countercultural, isn't it? This is completely against everything that we know. This is not what we expect greatness to look like, is it? It's not what we expect greatness to look like because we've had it drilled into us from a very young age, from society, from our families, from everyone around us, what greatness is. And greatness is getting to the top. It's climbing the ladder. It's climbing the social ladder. It's climbing the academic ladder. It's climbing the work ladder, the respect ladder, whatever you want to say. It's getting to the top. It's being the best of the best. Being at the top, that's where greatness comes from. To be great means that you're, you're highly respected in society. To be great means that you have a very good job. To be great means that your marks are fantastic. To be great means that uh, you're a, someone that is a really successful mother. To be great means you've got a perfect family. To be great means that you're the best. You're the best. And in one sense, when you think about it, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to be great? Right? Who doesn't want to excel at what they do? To be respected and accepted by everyone around them. Now, there's some of us here in this, uh, sitting right here with us, who greatness is what drives them. You live for greatness in your work, in your sport, in your hobby, whatever it is. You just, you're driven to achieve certain goals so that you can be great. That's what drives you. And everyone around you actually thinks that that's an amazing thing. And they affirm you and they say, you're, they admire that. They say, that's fantastic that you're so successful and that you're so driven to reach your goals. Good on you. Greatness is what drives you. That's for some of us here. But... For many of us here, that's not, that's not particularly the case. We're not driven to be the greatest. We're not driven to be the best. We just want to be above average, right? That's what we think. Uh, we just want to be above average. But let me tell you, I think greatness is driving you more than you think. Because you know what one of the biggest human fears is for all of us? It's the fear of being seen as weak. Being seen as weak. That is such a huge fear for us. That drives our lives, isn't it? That fear of being seen as weak by people around us. And can I say, if you're, um, you've been raised in an Asian background, as many of us are, that's even stronger, isn't it? Losing face, not having respect, bringing shame, being seen as lowly and weak. We will do anything to avoid that. Anything. So at least we've got to work hard to make sure we're competent, to make sure we're great enough so that people respect us and don't see us as lowly. That's what we work towards. We'll do whatever it takes to not be seen as a loser. But friends, this is not how Jesus thinks. Because Jesus says, if you want to be first, if you want to be the greatest, you need to be last. You need to be last. If you want to be a winner, you need to be a loser. You know what happens when you come last in a race? You lose. You lose. You're at the very bottom. You're at the back of the pack. You're rock bottom. There's nowhere else to go. You're the lowest of the low when you're last place. And this is what Jesus Christ is calling us to. But Jesus also says, this is how you win. 
this is how you win, this is how you achieve greatness. How is this possible? How can being last actually achieve greatness for us? How can we win in that situation? Now, friends, there's a bit of a trend going through schools at the moment. Um, it's this trend, it's everyone's a winner. Uh, you know, this trend. There's no such thing as losing. So if you, come, if you come last in your race, if you don't score any points whatsoever, it doesn't matter, you're a winner. You're a winner, you tried. Uh, you, you at least get one of these things, a participation, I've got a few of these things, participation ribbons. So it's been going on for a while, but it's a lot stronger nowadays, isn't it? No one loses, everyone's a winner. Everyone's a winner. Is that what Jesus Christ is talking about? Everyone's a winner, it doesn't matter where you come. No. He's not talking about that. We need to understand rightly what he's saying here. Jesus is saying, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, you need to be last in this world. If you want to be first in the kingdom of God, you need to be last in this world. This is revisiting the economics of the kingdom that we looked at last week in Mark 8. This is how things work. If you want to be first in the kingdom of God, you need to be last here in this world. This is what Jesus is saying. You need to be a servant. You need to be low. You need to be in that position where people don't respect you. People look down on you. You're serving everyone. You're not the one being served. Servants aren't great. But this is what Jesus is calling us, who are believers, to. You might be seen as a loser here, but in the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, you are truly, truly great. And let, let's think about something here. Jesus doesn't have anything against greatness. Did you realize that? He doesn't have anything against greatness. He's not saying you're not allowed to be great. In fact, he's saying you should be great. He's saying you should seek to be first. Greatness is something that should drive you. Greatness is something that you should seek out. Greatness is something that you need to have at the center of your mind. But what sort of greatness is it? It's greatness in the kingdom of God. It's greatness in the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. That is our goal, not earthly greatness. Because guess what? The greatness of this world will fade. It's here one day, it's gone tomorrow. When you go from this world, your name will be forgotten no matter how great you are. The things that you have here, your successes, your achievements, they will not last. We know this to be true. They will not last. But you know what the promise of heaven holds? Eternal greatness. Eternal greatness. Eternal glory. In the kingdom of God, you have the status of greatness for eternity. If we have a look at another... Um, Part of Revelation, Revelation 3, 21. Let me show you what the future holds for you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Revelation 3, 21 says this. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. This is Jesus speaking, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Have a think about these verses here. What is Jesus saying to those who follow him? I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious, and sit down with my Father on His throne. With Jesus Christ, if we follow Christ, you know what's in store for us? We get to be kings. 
We get to rule with Jesus Christ on that final day. Do you understand that? We're royalty with Christ. We get to share in His kingship. We get to share in His greatness. We get to share in His rule. We are co-heirs of Christ, co-rulers of Christ. This is how God the Father sees us. This is what is in store for us on the final day. Did you realize that? We'll be sitting on the throne with Christ Jesus. By ourselves, we are nothing. But with Jesus, we have everything. We have greatness like the world has never, ever seen. And greatness that will never fade. Eternal greatness. Because we are seen as God's own sons. Co-heirs with Christ. Co-rulers with Christ. We inherit all things meant for Christ. Because we are with Him. That is the greatness that's in store for us. And this heavenly glory, this greatness, will never fade. Never fade. It will never go away. Jesus wants us to strive for this greatness. Did you notice when the disciples were arguing about greatness before? Jesus doesn't actually tell them off about arguing about this, but he just changes their framework. You're, you're arguing about greatness? Well, let me tell you about greatness. To be first, you need to be last. Greatness in the kingdom of God comes with being last in this world. The path to greatness, friends, is servanthood. It's servanthood. Jesus gives a solid example of this in verse 36. Have a look at verse 36 of Mark 9 with me. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Think about kids. Think about little children. They do not have a high status in society, do they? They're not highly respected. They're not people we aspire to be like. I wish we could be like kids. Well, sometimes for different reasons because we can be carefree. But we don't, we don't aspire for their social standing. Kids are lowly in society. They, they don't have much weight in what they say. And even more so in Jesus' time. But Jesus is saying, these are the sorts of people that you have to lower yourselves to serve, to welcome them. This is what God wants for you to welcome and love lowly people. And he wants that so much that when you actually welcome these people, it's like you're welcoming God himself. The down and out, the low, those who have nothing. When you think about it, actually, we, have, um, we don't really have heaps of problems serving people uh, when it's someone who can benefit us. Right? We don't have problem serving our boss, because you know we can get something out of it. The rich, the famous, the wealthy, the powerful, they don't have problems getting people to serve them. People fall over themselves to serve these people because they want something out of it. There's some potential benefit that could come from serving that person. Right? But this is selfish service. This is selfish motiva selfishly motivated service. It's centered on us. And if you think about that, unfortunately, that's how we serve a lot of the times too. Seeking something for ourselves. That's why we serve that other person. But this is not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about service to those who can give you nothing in return. He's talking about service to the very lowest of low. You lower yourselves beneath them. He's, giving, he's talking about service even when people can't do anything in return for you. Especially when people can't do anything in return for you. 
That's what he's talking about. That's the service he's talking about. Lowly service. To be on the bottom. And this, this is completely countercultural. I know personally speaking, this is the last thing that I want to do. To spend my precious time, my precious energy, serving someone that I get nothing in return from. This is the last thing I want to do most of the time. And that's exactly why I need to do it. Because Jesus is asking us to sacrifice. He's asking us to follow in his footsteps. And remember who Jesus is? He is the servant king. He is the servant king. We saw a little glimpse of his greatness before in the transfiguration. He is the glorious, powerful, radiant, you know, amazing defeater of death. He is the glorious, great king. But what is his path to get there? It's rejection, it's suffering, it's death in shame on the cross. That's his path to greatness. And that is the path he calls us to as well. To serve with everything that we have. This is the servanthood we are called to. So let me talk to us who are followers of Jesus Christ now. How are you going at serving when you think back to your past week, and you think about the percentage of time that was spent uh, focused on others, serving others, loving others, what percentage of that time would that be for you? My guess is that most of our weeks are spent centered on us. Our time and energy and our effort and our money are centered on us and benefiting us and growing us and elevating us. And we squeeze in a little bit of service when we can. Maybe when it's convenient, we'll serve someone else. We've got a little bit of spare time. We'll squeeze it in on the sides. But Jesus Christ is saying, this is our main game. This is the main game. Servanthood. Serving. This is what we devote our time and energy and effort into. That's what we're called to. And let's get practical. Let me talk to you about church. What does that look like here for church? Unfortunately, we so often bring a consumer mentality to church because we're consumers in the world, aren't we? And we bring that mentality to church that we come to church to get what we want to out of it. So I come because I enjoy the music. I come because I enjoy the teaching. I come because I enjoy my friends. Now, all these are good things. They're good things. But if that's all that you're coming to church for, then you've completely missed the point. You've got it completely wrong. These are not the reasons you come to church. Well, not alone. Because you come to serve. You come to serve. That's why Christ has gathered his church together. We come to look out for the sake of others. We don't come centered on ourselves. The questions we need to be asking when we enter these doors, or before we enter these doors, is how can I love others today? How can I encourage others today? How can I serve others today? How can God use me to build up other people in this church? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves as we walk through these doors. What does that look like personally, or practically? Well, let me start with a simple one. It starts with coming on time. It starts with coming on. You cannot serve people if you're not here. That's a simple fact, isn't it? 
And think about how we can love and serve those who put in effort to lead us in worship and song. The music team, they work so hard to help us to be centered on Jesus Christ and his glory through song. And how unloving is it to walk in halfway through the third song when they're just about to finish? Do you think that's an encouraging thing? Do you think that's a servant thing? That's something that we can change. And when you think about why we come late to church, we all have different reasons. Sometimes it's valid. But a lot of the times it's because we don't want to. We can't be bothered. We're too lazy. We didn't sleep well the night before. Is that a good enough reason? How are you going at serving others? Here's another one. How about when you come into church thinking intentionally about where you sit? Where are you going to sit? This seems like a silly thing to say. Of course, I'll sit with my friends. But think about where you sit and how you can use that to serve others. How about sitting next to the new person who's just come to church for the first time and who is alone? How about sitting next to them and welcoming them? making them feel like part of our community? How about sitting um, somewhere where you don't normally sit so you get to know someone else in the church? How about people on this side of the church sit on this side of the church and vice versa, and you guys in the middle, you you can switch around a bit too. Uh, Sitting elsewhere so you actually get to know other people, not just your friends. You can encourage other people. How about sitting next to that person that um, you find really hard to talk to? You know, that, the awkward person who doesn't have many friends and who you find really difficult to engage in conversation, well, that's exactly the person you should be sitting next to because you should be seeking to serve those people. How lonely must it feel to be someone who comes into our church and to sit alone whilst people walk past him? And unfortunately, I'll say on many occasions... I've seen that happen as people sit alone in this church and person after person walks past them and walks past them and walks past them to go sit next to their friend. Friends, let's serve one another. Let's love one another. Seek out the newcomer. Seek out someone different. Seek out the person without many friends. Seek out others. Let's serve. It's not about us. It's about others. It's not about us. It's about others. Here's a really practical one. Uh, When we have our fellowship lunch next week, how can you serve there? The FIA cooking team put in a lot of effort to cook for us, and oftentimes everyone disappears and they're left cleaning up by themselves. Is that a servant-hearted thing to do? Simple one to think about. How can we help in serving? And how about outside of church life? Um, Many of us here have a home that we can open up. But do you do that? Or do you subscribe to that mentality that is so pervasive in Australian culture that the home is my castle, this is my private space, this is my kingdom here? Or do you open it up so people can actually come in? Can you host a meal for newcomers? Can you invite people of different age groups different demographics to come over so you can get to know them? Can you serve others by simply having a meal, having coffee, hosting a Bible study, opening up that home of yours, using that to serve rather than for your own good? The women had a little uh, seminar on hospitality the other week, but hospitality, that is not a woman's subject. That is a Christian subject, isn't it? 
Christ calls us to serve because that's what he does for us. Are you willing to serve? This is the path to greatness. This is the path of discipleship that he calls us to. But it all starts with a change of hearts. Don't do this because I'm telling you to do it. Do it because you recognize what Christ has done for us and that it's not about us as we think about our service, but it's about others. It's not about us, it's about others. That's the heart that we need to have. This is the lowly path to greatness in the kingdom of God. Are you willing to sacrifice? Jesus is urging his disciples here, don't miss out on this greatness. Get, get into the kingdom. And Jesus finishes his teaching with his disciples on a very serious note. We're going to jump forward to verse 43. Let's have a look at verse 43 with me. Mark 9, verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to, be ent to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, this is strong, strong language, isn't it? I've used the ESV translation here because it just brings it out a little bit more accurately. It's, it's centered on sin. It's centered on sin. Don't sin. Don't sin. Don't sin. Make sure you don't sin. Because if you sin and you stay in sin, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You will not enter the kingdom. Sin, this is all about our hearts and all about our actions in rebellion to God. This is what Jesus says we need to get rid of to enter the kingdom, to enter greatness. Jesus is saying don't miss out on greatness because of your sin. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because we've been talking about servanthood as a path to greatness in the kingdom. Well, sin is the complete opposite of everything that servanthood embodies. Because you know what sin is about? Sin is about me. It's about me. It's about me. It's all about me. It's not anything. There's nothing to do with others in sin. It's selfish. It's all about making me the king, doing what I want, enjoying what I want, indulging myself. It's not thinking about others at all. It's the complete antithesis of what servanthood is is. It's the complete opposite. And if we follow the path of sin, it will not lead to greatness. Let me tell you that. It will lead to hell. It will lead to hell. Now, thanks to the media, some people have um, a bit of a skewed perception of what hell is. They think that hell's going to be a great place, that there'll be this little uh, demon there with a uh, pitchfork and he'll be like this cool dude and you'll just get to party. It'll be like a giant party because you'll get to do all the sinful things that you, want, that you do here in this world, getting drunk, partying, uh, enjoying so yourself. This is not the picture of hell that the Bible gives us, that Jesus gives us. It won't be great. Hell... It's a place of horrific suffering, horrific pain. Look at the description of hell here in verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The worm does not die because it's continually feasting on the bodies of those in rebellion against God. 
The fire does not die. It just keeps burning and burning and burning and burning. This is a picture of eternal, everlasting judgment and suffering for eternity. This is a, a horrific picture. This is a terrifying picture of what the reality holds for those who do not trust in Christ. And this is not nice to talk about. Um, you realize when Jesus talks about hell, he doesn't pull any punches, does he? He tells it like it is, and he talks about hell over and over and over and over again in the Gospels. He keeps talking about hell. Do you know why? He doesn't want people to go there. He doesn't want people to go there. He's very, very concerned. This is his heart of compassion for people. He wants people to reach greatness in the kingdom of heaven, not suffering in the depths of hell. Jesus doesn't pull punches. It's not comfortable to talk about, but this is what the reality of hell is. And he's saying, do whatever it takes to make sure you don't go there. Cut off your hand. Cut off your foot. Pluck out your eye. It's better to do that than to not get into the kingdom. Now, is Jesus saying that we should be maiming ourselves literally, just cutting off our body parts? Well, we know in Mark 7 that the real issue is the heart. So cutting off body parts is not going to solve it in one sense. But he's saying, here, yeah, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes to make sure you put off sin and enter the kingdom. You need to take drastic measures and it will hurt, but it will have eternal gains. So friends, do you need to cut off, do you need to pluck out your eye? Do you need to do something about your porn problem? Do you need to install accountability software like Covenant Eyes on all your devices, even though it costs money? Do you need to not use your smartphone when you're home alone, even though it's incredibly inconvenient? Yes, those are the sort of things you need to do. Do you need to cut off your foot? Do you need to stop going to places which tempt you to sin? Do you need to go, stop going to that particular party or that particular club or wherever it is? Even though it's fun, but you're tempted to sin there. So do you need to stop that? Jesus is saying yes, even though it hurts. Do you need to cut off your hand? What is your particular sin that you really struggle with? What is it for you? What is it that turns you away from God and turns you to the pleasures of sin? What is that for you? What do you need to stop it? Do that thing. Stop it. Whatever it takes, even though it hurts, even though it's hard. Because Jesus Christ says, reaching greatness in the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing more important than that. Above all, friends, as we end, let me leave you with the application, the implication for all of us. We need to pray. We need to pray. I'll tell you two things to pray for. We need to pray, first of all. Uh, well, we need to thank God in our prayer that even as we struggle with sin, as we're tempted and we fall, that Christ Jesus has paid the price for us already and that we can have assurance of forgiveness through the cross. That our struggles with sin as, our, as we stumble along doesn't, doesn't take us away from the hope that we have in heaven if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. And we need to pray and thank God for that. And we need to keep relying on God and praying that he'll keep forgiving us through that power of the cross. We need to keep depending 
on the cross as we sin, and sin keeps driving us back there. That's where sin needs to drive us. Uh, also pray, secondly, that God will transform your heart. Because I don't know about your experience as a Christian, but I know personally that you will not stop sinning by your willpower. You cannot just, you know, grit your teeth and just through sheer bare-knuckled determination, just like, yes, I'm going to stop sinning. I'm just going to stop it today. Yes, finally, today's the day. I'm going to stop it. You can't do that. That's not how it works. Your willpower does not stop sin. It is God's power in you. So you need to ask him to transform your heart. That's the only way that you will ever overcome your struggles. And day by day, he will honour that prayer. Little by little, he will help you to grow to be more holy. Jesus wants you to do whatever it takes. My daily prayer is that I'll love God more. I love sin less. Because I know I'm so weak by myself. That's, maybe that's a prayer that you'd like to do, pray as well. Friends, Jesus wants us to reach greatness. Greatness in the kingdom. And he wants us to do whatever it takes to get there. Greatness means becoming a servant. It means becoming low. It means putting off yourself and thinking of others first and foremost. And yes, that is hard, but this is the path of greatness as we follow our King, the servant King. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what He calls you to. But what awaits us in the future is so great that it's worth it. Let's follow our servant King, friends, thinking of the future glory that awaits Let's follow the one who gave us everything, who became nothing, so we can have everything for eternity. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your service of us as you gave your own son. Father, we thank Jesus Christ for his sacrifice, even though he is king, to become the lowest of low for us in shame and suffering on the cross. And we pray as he lays out the path of greatness to us, the path of discipleship for us, that we will walk that path, but we will walk it by your strength, not ours. Help us to be willing to put off sin, to be willing to become low, to serve others. Looking forward to the greatness that awaits us with Jesus Christ for eternity. And in his name we pray. Amen.